Well, hello. Good evening. Good evening. Glad to see everybody. It's been a while. My name is Clint. For those of you who don't know, or maybe I haven't met, but it's a joy to be with you here again today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead, of course, take them out. We'll be in Jude today, finishing up verses 17 through 25. 17 through 25. You know, last time I was here, I made mention that I had a few interests, and one of those interests was wristwatches. But does anybody here, a show of hands, is anybody a jewelry person? Is anybody like rings or necklaces, watches, whatever? Okay, so there's a few of you. Yeah, sure. When it comes to jewelry, what is some of the most expensive jewelry typically made of? Diamonds, Diamonds? okay. Precious metals. Precious metals. Gold. Gold, there you go. That's what I was looking for. Thank you, sir. Gold, yeah. Some of the most expensive jewelry is made of gold. And you know, over the centuries, jewelers have caught on to this and realized that people will shell out a lot of cash for jewelry that's made of gold. However, not everyone can afford jewelry made of gold. But some people can afford jewelry that's either faux gold or gold-plated. Maybe you're familiar with this. Take a ring, for instance. A ring that is plated in gold will be made out of a, a cheaper alloy such as stainless steel. And what they'll do is they'll take that stainless steel and put a thin veneer of gold around the surface. So to the the watching world, it looks like you're wearing a gold ring, but in reality, it's just this thin veneer of gold on top of a much cheaper alloy. And over time, as you wear that ring, your skin rubs up against it. And what do you think happens to that thin veneer? Eventually, it'll rub off. You know, the interesting thing is, with that uh, gold-plated ring, as that thin veneer rubs off, what happens is a chemical reaction. The alloys begin to mix and mix with the chemicals from your skin, and your skin will start turning green. Now, zinc, I'm sorry, gold-plated jewelry isn't the only one that's do this. There's some pure alloys such as copper that do it as well. But the moral of the story is, if you're walking down the street and you see somebody with a bunch of jewelry on, nested on top of green skin, it's a pretty clear indication that you have an imposter of some sort. And similarly, tonight, we're going to be looking at God's Word, and we're going to be picking up in Jude, seeing how spiritual corrosion reveals imposters in the church. Let's read our passage, starting in verse 14 for context. It was about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, The Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Now verse 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time, 
There will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we are grateful to be here tonight. In your kind provision, you've given us a place to come and to turn to your word. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be conformed more and more into the image of your Son Christ by what we're doing tonight. And may you receive all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our timeless truth for tonight is this. Faithful Christians guard the church from false teachers. Faithful Christians guard the church from false teachers. But you know, not all guarding is created equally. If I ask you to guard an opponent in basketball, it's going to look much different than you guarding your family from a home invasion. So how is it that the church is supposed to guard against false teachers? Do we need to practice setting screens for one another or should we keep our weapons oiled properly? Well, today we're going to see three divine tactics God has given you to guard his church with. For a little bit of context, can anyone give me a really brief summary of where we've been in Jude? So the two last lessons, can anybody, does anybody have a, a quick summary they can provide of your first lesson in Jude and the second lesson? Yes, sir. Um, who is God to you? Okay, very good. Yep, that was our first lesson, yeah. So to be a Christian, we learned, means to reject sin and to wholly commit our lives to God's will. And because false teachers creep into the church, it provokes a need in us to inquire of ourselves a very important question. And it was the question, yes, you just asked, who is God to you? You see, it's naive to think that the entire threat to the church solely rests outside of us. But as Matt told us, we should be asking ourselves, who, who is God to us? We should be checking our own hearts. Second, we learn to beware of false teachers in the church who are destructive and whose end is destruction. Jude calls us to contend for the faith, and so we begin by examining our own hearts. Then we stay vigilant in defending against destructive doctrines that seek to creep into the church, but when they do... God has given us a strategy to guard his church. And that first strategy or that first tactic 
is we remember. Tactic number one, remember. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Up until now, Jude's focus has largely been on the false teachers and the imposters. But tonight, verse 17, a transition is going to happen. We see that from the word but. It signals a change in the topic. Our verses today are actually Jude's application verses for the entire book. In verses 1 through 16, We've learned much educational information and informative information about what the false teacher is, their motives, what they look like. But tonight, we're going to learn what to do with that knowledge. Jude's first offensive tactic is that we remember. And what does Jude tell us that we ought to be remembering? Can anyone tell me what we ought to remember based on Jude? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Yes, the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles. Let's take this one at a time. The words. Verse 18 tells us the words that Jude has in mind. Can someone find those words in verse 18 and tell them to me? The words that were in fact spoken beforehand, he tells us what they were. In the last time there will be scoffers falling after their own ungodly passions. Thank you. That's correct. Now, if you go looking for these exact words in your Bible, you'll be hard-pressed to find them because they're not there. However, we can find similar warnings throughout Scripture, and that's because these words are biblical teachings or, or sayings that were comprised and brought together and circulated throughout the early church. Now, this isn't an issue for us. The words are undoubtedly sound. And again, we see essentially the same warning throughout Scripture, even coming from our own Lord, given multiple times. But these words were spoken and were spoken. If you pay attention closely, this is how the translator translates what's called the perfect tense. The words were spoken. The perfect tense means an action that has happened in the past, but has ongoing or lingering consequences. Jude is working hard to distinguish between the words, the sayings, or the teachings that the apostles brought to the church, which resulted in salvation, versus the false teachers. If we look back at verse 16, let's do that. Verse 16, what aim... Did the false teachers have in mind with their words? What were they shooting for? Verse 16 tells us. Yes, sir. That's right. Personal gain. Yes, sir. Youth. Remembering sound teaching is a primary tactic that God has given us to guard against imposters that seek self-gain rather than self-denial. Paul talks about this in Galatians 1, verses 8 through 10. He says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. 
As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he's to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a doulos, a bondservant of Christ. Interestingly, Paul, the, the teaching that Paul's defending against here is a Jesus plus something structure. What, the, what was brought to the Galatians was a teaching that said, Jesus, you need Jesus for salvation, but you also need to keep doing these other things, these other works of the law. And now this type of teaching is still common today because people want to have a say or they want to feel responsible in some measure for their own salvation. Right? We all would love to think that we were good enough in some measure or some fashion to contribute to our own salvation, but Scripture teaches otherwise. Such teachings say that Jesus cracks the door for us to salvation, but you must walk through the door and by your good works maintain and upkeep that salvation. Paul says, let them be accursed who say that. But Jude is warning against a very different teaching. These teachers are teaching in the opposite direction. These false teachers were going and saying, because Jesus had paid for sin once and all for com completely, there was no need to obey any commands or, or, or pay attention to anything in Scripture because sin's paid for. We, we have license to live however we want. So they weren't looking to add works. They were looking to live however they want because the, Jesus had paid for all their sins. To that, Paul would also say, accursed. But these words were spoken beforehand. These words, sayings, and teachings from the apostles were given beforehand. But what were they given before? What does he mean by beforehand? What event were these words spoken before, if that makes sense? In context, there's an event that happens. It's before the teachers crept in. You know, growing up, I uh, was pretty close with a family who was, uh, they worked real hard to raise their kids as upstanding people. They were the real salt of the earth type people. And these kids uh, were obedient and minded their parents, but there came a day as they grew older that they wanted to engage in a little bit of mischievous activity. That's a natural inclination some of you have felt, but they didn't want to do it apart from their parents' permission. So they devised a plan. Does anyone know what toilet papering a house is? Oh, okay, some of y'all, oh boy, that shot up quick, some of y'all know. Okay, yeah, so it was decided that these kids were gonna toilet paper a house. But what the parents did is they called and they found a willing victim, okay? They found a victim who was willing to allow their kids come over and throw toilet paper in their trees and over their cars and in the bushes and on top of the mailbox. The kids didn't know this, but they found a willing victim. But my question is this. When those victims woke up in the morning, poured their cup of coffee and went out front, do you think they were surprised at what they saw? No. All the fun, I mean sting, was taken out of it because the parents were informed before the toilet paper ever even got thrown. Similarly, because the apostles were forewarned that the church was going to be seeing false teachers come in, it helped take away the anxiety and fear out of the equation. And it allows us sheep 
to be on lookout by remembering sound teaching from faithful shepherds. Next, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. The apostles said that the coming of the mockers who teach doctrines of self-promotion to the church would be a signal that the initiation of the last days had begun. You know, the last days refer to a time in redemptive history after the Messiah has come, been crucified, resurrected, and ascended. We are, biblically speaking, living in the last days. This is one reason why the New Testament is so adamant that the saints stay on lookout for the return of Christ. No one knows the hour or the time of his return. But believing to be justified by keeping the law or ignoring the law altogether because they believe that sin's paid for, these mockers can be identified in the church because they cause divisions. And ultimately, they're unbelievers. Worldly-minded, Scripture tells us. Devoid of the Spirit. These are really two sides of the same coin. Your translation could say that they are natural. And the idea there is that these are unregenerate men living their natural life and the natural sin that they were born in. These men do not possess the Spirit of God. Galatian teaches us clearly that the person without the Spirit is an unbeliever. So, Christian soldier, your first tactic in guarding the church against false teachers is to remember sound teaching. Being equipped with sound teaching, even the sheep can smell a rat. The faithful Christian's second tactic to guard the church from false teaching, as we will see, is to keep. Keep. But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Jude, again, here is working very hard to draw a, distinct, uh, a distinction between the imposters who are the fake teachers and the beloved. He says, but you, beloved, again, this is the second time he said that, the false teachers are unbelievers devoid of the Holy Spirit, but the true church is made up of those who are loved by God. Can someone look back at verse 1, Jude Verse 1. Would someone read that aloud for me? Anybody? Verse 1 of Jude. Yes, back in the back. Thank you. I'm not certain that any of you are going to know what I'm about to talk about. But have any of you ever seen a commercial? Okay, a few of you, all right. You know, there used to be a day when you couldn't fast forward the TV or Spotify, or we called it the radio, but you were held captive to these commercials. You had to watch them if you wanted to keep watching your show. And there's a particular type of commercial that preys on human instincts. Has anyone seen the commercial where this company is offering unbelievable deals 
but only to the first 100 callers who call in. Does anybody, anybody called the number? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Well, this method of advertisement preys upon and leverages our desire to have the inside scoop or to be on the inside of a group. Perhaps some of you have joined chat rooms for cheat codes for video games or fashion advice or hopefully theological insights that may not be available to other people. Well, this beloved of whom Jude is speaking is about to receive an inside scoop. The tactics he's about to outline are only for those who are the called, beloved of God and kept for Jesus Christ. These tactics will not work for outsiders because they are devoid of the Spirit. Jude's command is to keep ourselves in the love of God. Sounds difficult, right? Well, fortunately, Jude doesn't just leave us hanging. He gives us three ways to keep ourselves in the love of God. Grammatically speaking, we have one verb, which is keep, and we have three participles, building, Praying, waiting. And now we need to realize that Jude is speaking to the church. This letter is addressed to the church, a collective body, because it's easy for us to read these verses and to become focused on ourselves, to think this is how to keep myself, or for Clint, to keep himself in the love of God, but that isn't quite correct. One commentator states, the use of the building metaphor forms a contrast with the activity of the false teachers in the preceding verses. Whereas they disrupt the church and tear it apart, Jude's readers are to construct it. These are the three ways we keep each other collectively, all of us. We look out for one another. This is how we keep each other in the love of God. First is by building Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Jude uses the present active form of this word, which technically means to build upon a foundation which was already there. We're not starting this building from scratch. We're starting on a foundation which was laid for us. 1 Corinthians 9, I'm sorry, 3, 9 through 11. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. This is Paul speaking. And another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You see, we're building a unique structure. And Jude means by the most holy faith, that clause there, that this is superior to any other faith. Wise master builders, unlike false teachers, don't use worldly materials. What are some ways, if anyone's willing, what are some ways God has given us to be built more into the image of his son? If we want to be conformed and built into the image of Son, what are, of God's Son, what are some things that we can do to do that? Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Yes, thank you. Yeah, that's a great answer. One primary way that we do that is through prayer, praying in the Holy Spirit. Faithful Christians guard the church from false teachers by keeping themselves in the love of God by building and praying. 
One of the unique materials that we must build and guard with is prayer. Now, praying in the Holy Spirit means that we are controlled or guided or influenced by the Holy Spirit. There's going to be some who will want to say that this praying in the Spirit is, is praying out loud in tongues. But we know contextually that that can't be accurate. And without spending too much time on the relevancy of tongues for today, we can say with certainty that we, that you and I, do not build one another up by praying in tongues. And that's because that gift ceased with the ending of God's revelation. So, if that's the case, then how do we pray being guided by the Holy Spirit? Well, to pray under the influence of the Spirit... We expose ourselves to the mind of the Spirit, to the thoughts of the Spirit, and to the intentions of the Spirit. We pray what the Spirit tells us to pray. And where would we find that information? Would it be safe to Google that information? <laughs> Probably not. Where would we look to find the mind and the thoughts of the Holy Spirit? Scripture. Scripture. Yes, sir. Thank you. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. If we want to keep our church from harm, from the harm of false teachers, then we must pray under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We should pray like Jesus prayed, John 17, he's talking to the Father, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. When was the last time that you prayed you petition the Lord for the preservation of a fellow believer? When is the last time that you prayed that God would sanctify your brother, your sister, your mother or father with the words of Scripture? Do you pray for your leaders that God would not take them out of this world, but that he would keep them from the evil one? If you have pen and paper, and I hope you do, I'd like you to write down these two resources. You can add them to your Christmas list. I bet you'll get them. One of them is two books, similar titles. The first is Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. Praying the Bible by Don Whitney. The second, also written by Don, this is Don Carson, Praying with Paul. Praying with Paul by Don Carson. And if you don't get those written down, you can see me afterwards. But the beloved of God prays to God that he would protect his church and then the beloved waits, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. I want you to notice the Trinitarian arrangement here in these verses. In the love of God, Praying in the Holy Spirit. Waiting on Christ. Waiting is something saints, both Old and New Testament, have done for a long time. 
You see, before the cross, Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming of God's Messiah for their salvation. New Testament saints have the privilege of living after the resurrection, and we look back at the finished work of Christ, but we too also wait. And we as New Testament saints, what, what is it that we're waiting for? What is the New Testament saint waiting for? Yes, thank you. The return of Christ. Jesus is second coming. Faithful Christians guard the church against false teachers by keeping ourselves, again, collectively in the love of God by waiting on Christ's return. But waiting is difficult. With Christmas just around the corner, a child's patience can grow weary waiting for the morning of the 25th to finally arrive. Or, if your family's into this, the evening of the 24th, but I don't suggest it. Waiting for Christmas morning is difficult today when your mind is focused on, okay, it's December 13th, still got like two weeks before Christmas gets here, and I haven't got a chance to open the present. It's easy to become discouraged from focusing on the condition of your weary soul today without your beloved present. Instead, the wise child will wait faithfully as he thinks about December 26th, the day after when he has his toy with him and he can enjoy it all the day long. Well, similarly, the faithful Christian waits expectantly, not focusing on the present reality of Christ not being with us, but on Christ's merciful invitation to us to enjoy eternal life with him forever. And notice, how does Jude tell us to wait? Again, grammar nerd, what's, what's the adverb there that Jude uses? He says to wait in a particular fashion. Waiting patiently, anxiously, expectantly, diligently. Jesus himself taught us how to wait for his return in Matthew 25 with the parable of the ten virgins. You see, the wise virgins didn't let the absence of the bridegroom distract them from preparing for his coming. But the foolish virgins became lazy and waited very poorly, resulting in the missing out of being with him. Is it any surprise to us as we look at Jude tonight that our hope in guarding the church from false teachers relies so heavily upon the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit? Faithful Christians guard the church from false teaching by keeping themselves in the love of God, by building our faith on God's Word, praying in accordance with the Holy Spirit's revealed will, and waiting expectantly on the promised return of the Son. Now, you know this word keep, the idea of keeping ourselves in God's love, does it cause your flesh to tingle a little bit? At the thought of keeping yourself, does that stir up any pride within you? Well, if it does, now is the time that we put that off and come to a right understanding because there's a nuance here that we need to understand. You see, there are multiple terms in the Greek for the word and each one can stress a different meaning. The meaning of the keep that we're looking at is more of an idea of preservation. Imagine a gardener. A gardener or a farmer has many tactics and resources that they use, such as pulling weeds, spreading fertilizer, watering the plants, 
hoping that they flourish, but any experienced farmer or gardener will tell you that they can go through all of these exercises and they're worthy of doing. They should be pursued. But the crops can completely fail despite going through all that. Their efforts are important, but by no means is the farmer solely responsible for the harvest or the success of the crop. In the same way, we must engage, we are commanded to engage in keeping ourselves in the love of God so that we don't fall prey to false teaching, but we're fools to think that our efforts will deserve the glory. But what about those who don't engage in these tactics? What about those brothers and sisters who have neglected the tactics of building, praying, waiting, these things that are designed for our spiritual defense, and they begin to fall prey to the imposters. What about them? Well, Jude tells us that no man's left behind without attempting a rescue mission. We attempt to keep them as well. But two things real quickly before we move forward. I want you to know we're talking about rescuing sheep and not about disciplining wolves. We're not talking about church discipline. In church discipline, there may come a time when a believer is excommunicated or put out of the fellowship, but that's not what we're talking about. Secondly, Jude is still speaking in the vein of keeping each other in the love of God, and we're commanded to engage in these honorable efforts, but realizing humbly that ultimately God will be responsible for the outcome. First, we saw three ways to keep ourselves by building, praying, and waiting collectively, now we will see three scenarios for keeping those who haven't engaged in the defensive measures. Three scenarios, each one increasing in danger as we go. First we see, and have mercy on some who are doubting. We faithfully wait for Christ and extend mercy to those who are Christ, but have failed to engage in these activities. The word doubting here speaks of a believer in the church who's sitting on the fence. Verse 5, back in verse 5, says that they know all things. Verse 3 says that they have received the faith once and all handed down for the saints. But they're also entertaining this false teaching of the imposters. They, they may not be convinced by it, but maybe subtly persuaded in some ways. These aren't wolves. These are vulnerable sheep that Jude tells us to have mercy on. These guys haven't been building themselves up in the word. They haven't been praying for God's will or eagerly anticipating Christ's return. But they also may not be spreading this new teaching, just pondering upon its validity. How are some ways we can show mercy to someone who is doubting in this measure? What's a way that we could be merciful to them? If we've been engaged in, in building and praying and waiting, and we know the truth, but we have a friend who's doubting, what's a merciful thing that we could do to reach out to them? Give them the gospel. Them the gospel. Encourage, them. Encourage them. Yeah. Show them mercy. Pray for them. Talk with them. Provide them with helpful books or sermons. These are ways to show mercy in an effort to the doubting to keep them in the love of God. But you see, doubting isn't the only consequence of neglecting these defensive tactics. It gets worse. Next, we save others, snatching them out of the fire. 
This is a different category. Again, we're moving down a progression. Jude says that there are three scenarios and each one is a matter of escalation. And so as we move down the line closer, we're moving closer to those who are in grave danger. Snatching, the word means to seize, to take control of, or to grab quickly. This is the spiritual version of your mom's forearm crushing your sternum as she hits the brakes. A forearm worthy of a Heisman trophy. When we neglect the word prayer and hoping in Christ, we move closer and closer and closer to danger. Jude calls it the fire. And wisdom would have us attempting to show mercy in the same way that we would to the first doubter. But because these sheep are more than doubters, they're more convinced by the false teaching. Therefore, this danger will demand greater effort on our parts. This may require deeper talks, rebuking false ideas or statements. It may require telling them and reminding them about the Israelites, the angels, and the sodomites of who God made examples of. As dangerous as this rescue mission is, will be for the faithful, there's yet still a worse condition. And have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Commentators debate whether this uh, phrase is a whole new category or if it should be connected to the fire snatchers. Well, throughout the letter, Jude, Jude seems to have a thing for threes. He has this repetition of threes, threes, threes. So, because of that, I tend to think that this is a different category. But the thrust of the statement is not to distinguish so much between people as it is to get our attention, to get our focus. When... Not if, but when we engage in keeping others in the love of God who have crept further and further and cl closer to danger, we must be extremely careful. Merciful, yes. Honest, yes. Sometimes even abrasive, yes. But definitely careful. When we think of a dangerous rescue missions that threaten our spiritual life and vitality, and it can become discouraging to want to obey this command, to keep ourselves, to engage in these disciplines. It can be awkward to approach people that we love who are giving way to false teaching and, and, are, and spiritual danger. So why, especially if we're doing the building and the praying and the waiting, why would we want to volunteer to dance with those who are dancing near the fire? The danger may seem too great. What hope do we have in surviving if we obey this command? Well, this brings us to our third and final tactic for guarding the church from false teaching. The third tactic is trust. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We need to trust that God is able. Is is the verb of this doxology. It's what Jude's calling our attention to. God is able. And what is he able to do? He's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Stumbling in scripture is, is messing up. It's falling short. 
It's sinning. It's disobeying. It's not good. We should not want to stumble. Jesus warns us in Matthew 18, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. In our efforts to keep ourselves in the love of God, there will be countless opportunities for us to stumble. So why obey? Why, why do we keep? Why do we keep trying to keep people in the love of God? Because God is able. In fact, this keeping that God does is different than ours. Whereas our keeping that we do is engaging in these spiritual disciplines, like a, a farmer who tends to his crop, this keeping that that Jude talks about here is a different word. It speaks of a Roman soldier keeping guard over someone. God is able to keep you from stumbling. And praise him for that. But guarding us from falling isn't all that he can do. He can also make us stand. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless, because God is able to keep us from stumbling, we can have confidence at Christ's return. Like the Old Testament saints who, who stood through the fire and their clothes never even stunk of smoke, so too God can keep us from the stain of the flesh. And imagine the joy on that day. This word joy speaks of abundant joy, like, like guests at a great banquet. God is able to make us stand in his presence with great joy, without fear, without condemnation, without the destruction of the Israelites, angels, and sodomites. However, grumbling Israelites, disobedient angels, and wretched sodomites are not the only ones who face destruction. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Condemnation faces all who sin against holy God. That's you, that's me, that's grandma, cousins, brothers, best friends, that's strangers who have never even heard the gospel before. Many don't know the dreadful fate that they face, what awaits them, but they need to hear. And you need to hear. Romans 10, 9 9 and 10, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Yeah, Clint, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but you haven't met my best friend. You haven't met my cousin. I don't know if God can save them. I mean, it's 2023. Do you know what people are doing these days? To that, Jude would say, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Your sins cannot surpass the mercy of our great Savior. God was willing before time began to save. God is able now, today, to save. And God will continue to save into 2024 until time ends and when forever begins. He is able. His is the glory, the majesty, and dominion, and authority. Amen. Would you pray with me?
Well, Father, we do love you. Lord, we are grateful for your word and your kindness to show us through this study of Jude, of your care for the church. You have laid the great foundation through your son, Jesus Christ. And as accursed as any man who would build on any other foundation, preach any other gospel, but Christ who died for sinners. So Lord, we ask now that like that Roman guard, that you would keep watch over us, that you would empower us and strengthen us to serve you, to keep ourselves, to keep the church, this church, North Lake Bible Church, to keep our friends, our family, to keep each other in the love of God. Father, help us to build our lives on your word, to pray by the power of your spirit, and help us to wait anxiously for the return of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen.